I, I don't know if this is something that David has, has said. I know that I certainly haven't said. But in this series that we're in at the moment, preaching through the book of Judges, that, that there's, a, there's a theme or a title to it. And that theme, that, that title is Faith in Times of Apostasy. So if you've been wondering why we have this giant word faith on, on the background, that's, that's why, because it, it's kind of the, the theme of what we're looking at, as we were, um, through this time. Um, and, and that theme of faith in, in the midst of apostasy is definitely something that we see throughout the book of Judges. Because we see time and time again, we see Israel abandon their religious belief, to, to give up their faith. Um, and in the midst of that, then we also see a smattering of those who keep faith and how they then call the people back to God in the midst of that kind of environment and context. So faith in times of apostasy is definitely something that we see in our passage for today as we come to Judges 4 and 5. When David asked me that, I should have said, no, I'm doing chapter 7. I should have like, messed with his head, but I, I didn't think of it till after I'd given the right answer. Um, but in these, in these chapters, we see two examples of faith in particular coming from unlikely sources. In these chapters, we have uh, two accounts of the same events. Basically, there's two different tellings of the same things that have gone on. In chapter 4, we have a more kind of historical uh, narrative account of what went on, where in chapter 5, it's more theological and poetic uh, response to, to the events. And so for our time together today, we'll look primarily at you know, the prose account in, in chapter 4, but at different times, we'll, we'll draw on some of the insights that chapter 5 gives us. So, if you've got your Bibles there, please open them up. Um, we will have it on the screen, but it'll be good to, to look through it together with me. So Bibles to Judges chapter 4. Actually, we'll start at the last verse of chapter 3, so, and then we'll read on. So last verse of chapter 3, it says, After Ehud, who was the left-handed saviour who we heard about last week. So after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Now chapter 4. Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. And this is the pattern that we see in Judges, that, that time and time again the Israelites turn away from God and do evil in his eyes, you know, that they commit you know, apostasy. They turn away from God and do evil once the, the judge or the saviour that he had risen up, uh, once they have died and are no longer on the scene. So we see this again. And so, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, which was officially in Israelite territory. And Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoyim. And because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, which was the, the leading edge you know, of military technology at the time, and uh, so he had these chariots and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for, for 20 years. And so they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading or, or judging Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give them into your hands. 
And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Well, certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And the way this story is, is being told at this point, we think that the woman whose hands Sisera uh, is going to be delivered into will be Deborah's. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. Now, if you've been tracking along, there's, there's been a couple of scene changes already. We, we've, we started with Jabba, and then we jumped to, to Deborah. And now we have um, a third scene change, and this one seems particularly obscure. But it's like when you're, when you're reading a novel, and, and the first you know, few chapters, each chapter is a different scene, a different character, a, a different context. And, and at, at first, you kind of don't know what's going on, and you don't know how all these stories, how these scenes interconnect. But as the story goes on, they all join together. And you say, wow, that was really clever. That's what's going on here. So now in verse 11, wild scene change, we go to Heba, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, Kenites, the descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law, and had pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Seems like a random fact, but keep it in mind. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the um, Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. And Deborah then said to Barak, Go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Now chapter 5 tells us that, that God had caused a river to flood and it made the ground soft and boggy. So that was less than ideal circumstances for heavy iron-fitted chariots to be you know, asserting their, their dominance in the, in the battlefield. And so their, their military advantage was denied to them and they were overcome by the more primitive, if you like, foot soldiers of Israel. And so Barak then pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagayim and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. And so this connects us back to that obscure little fact in, in verse 11. The significance of that is just about to become clear. So he fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come in. Come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Tell them no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through the tent through his temple into the ground, and he died. <laughs> kind of brutal. <laughs> but we see then that it's not, it's not 
uh, you know, not only was Barak not the one who Sisera was delivered uh, to, who overcame him, but in a surprising twist, it wasn't uh, Deborah either. It was this other woman, Jael. Well, just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to, to meet him. Come, and I will show you the man that you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And in the last verse of chapter 5, that brings this, the whole story to a close. It tells us that then the land had peace for 40 years. Well, in some ways, this is a, a story of girl power. You know, yay, yay the women. Um, and if this was, you know, a Hollywood movie, I mean, we would have Deborah and Jael. They would be, you know, they would be painted as mighty warrior women. I mean, these are the ones who, who lead Israel. These are the ones who defeat and kill the, the enemy. These are the ones who effect victory for the nation. But in actual fact, that's not the case in the story. I mean, yes, these women have prominence, but it, it's not about exalting them as, uh, and their power. Because here the women are significant, less because it's a, a girl power moment, and more because they're the, the left-handed saviors, like we had last week. They're the left-handed saviors of the story. They're the unlikely heroes. They're the unexpected, the overlooked, the discounted. The ones who, in lots of ways, and especially culturally, who in their very weakness reveal that it is the power, not of themselves, but the power of God that is at work through them as they hold fast to faith in God. Now, the narrative is clear enough, and it's got elements of the basic cycle that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that Israel does evil, they're oppressed by a foreign king and his army commander, a judge calls barracks to then lead the troops against them. He calls together the people, they fight, they win, Sisera flees, a seemingly random woman kills him, and then Israel have victory and peace in the land. It's a, it's a simple, clear enough story. I mean, especially once you get past those sudden scene changes early on. But after that, it all comes together into a pretty straightforward account of events. So the question is, though, especially as this is recording events so long ago, in reading such a narrative, what, what are we to take from it? I mean, if these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, which is what Paul tells us about the Old Testament in, in 1 Corinthians, what are we to take from this piece of ancient history? Well, there are actually a number of lessons we can draw from it, but I want to draw out uh, just four for us today. The first comes from a pattern that we see in Israel in general throughout Judges, but we also see it specifically in the person of Barak in the story. Something that we see here in this passage is the people having faith in a leader rather than in God himself. This is the pattern of Judges. We see it in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. It's like they can't stay faithful and true to God without the person because their faith is in the person, not in God. Now, earlier in chapter 2, it tells us that when a generation grew up who, who didn't know the Lord, they did evil in his eyes. 
And so then God would raise up a judge. And while this judge lived, the people would be saved from the oppression that resulted um, from their sinfulness. But again, once that judge died, they would just return to their evil. And things would get worse and worse each time. So what happens here is that the people have faith in a judge. They have faith in a leader who saves them uh, for a time from their oppression. But they lack faith in God, the one who provides that judge and the salvation. And we see it, as I said, in Barak. See, Deborah summons Barak and he tells him to raise an army and to do so because God has said that he will give Barak the victory. But what's Barak's response? He says, well, if you, you know, not God, but if you, Deborah, prophet, judge, mother of Israel, if you go with me, you as the leader of the people, if you go with me, I'll go. But if, if you don't, even though God has spoken, if you don't come with me, I, I don't have confidence that anything's going to go how I want, so how we want it to go, so I'm not going to go. God has promised victory, but Barak at this time does not have his faith and his confidence in God. He has them in Deborah. And Barak here, as a representative of the people of God, does not have, it seems, his own experience of God, his own faith in God. Deborah does. And the people recognize and see this. And so Barak has faith in her, but not directly with God. And this is a problem. And I mean, this is why whenever the judge dies, Israel goes back into sin because they're putting their trust in the wrong place. They are following a leader rather than God himself. And this is not just a problem for them. This is not just a problem way back, you know, for those silly Israelites that we've talked about before. We do it. I mean, your faith lies not in your own experience of God, but in that of another person, whether that's a friend, a pastor, a parent. It's them that you're following rather than Jesus. And so when that person leaves for whatever reason, you fall away from your faith. And it's actually one of the things that I love about this church. I don't think that we're building you know, a cult of personality around David or, or myself. And if we were, it would be a pretty boring one, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I remember when... No offence, I'm speaking for myself, David. <laughs> I'm sure you're very interesting. But I remember when Jonathan, our, our previous senior pastor, you know, before David left, I had someone come up to me and to say, in effect, you know, with a bit of surprise, to be honest, but that the church didn't fall apart. You know, our senior pastor left, but we just kept functioning and going. And the point that this person was making is... That happened because we didn't have our faith in Jonathan. Our faith wasn't in him. It was in Christ. And Christ never left the church. And so likewise, now this is not Hojo's church. This is not Matt's church. But rather, we are a Christ-centered church. He's the hero. He's the savior. He's the one that we put our faith in. And, and, and I think that you really should only follow David or myself or anyone else to the degree that we actually point beyond ourselves to Jesus. And what's encouraging in this story in Judges is that Barak actually gets that right a bit later on. In verse 14, Deborah again gives him the instruction and encouragement from God. But instead now of saying, okay, but I'll only go if you come with me because my faith is in you, instead he just does it. Because 
has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And now Barak has confidence in that. He's putting his faith in God. Based on the confidence of God's actions and God's word, Barak now advances. His faith now seems to be in the right place. And as a result, when, it come, when the author of Hebrews comes to write their list of the heroes of the faith, Barak gets included in that. So, let's be clear though. We are to follow the God-appointed leaders in the church and in our nation and in our lives and all of that. We're to follow God-appointed leaders, but our faith is to always be in Jesus. People can very easily lead us astray, but Jesus will always be true, always keeping us on the straight and narrow path. So we need to have our faith in him. Well, having seen then that you know, faith in leaders rather than in God is a problem. It makes sense that uh, a second lesson that we can learn from this passage is actually about leadership and, and the kinds of leaders that we should follow. We read that Deborah was leading or judging Israel at this time, doing so in the midst of their apostasy and the oppression that resulted. And she did so on the basis of her relationship with God and her personal experience of him. She led and judges Israel out of the integrity and authenticity of her own walk with God. So you notice what the passage tells us about Deborah. Not only was she a prophet, you know, hearing from God and speaking his words on his behalf, but she then held court and mediated between and decided disputes for the Israelites. And in this, she followed, fulfilled a role like that of Moses. Moses knew God and his will and he would judge for the people according to what he knew of God. And, and that's exactly then what Deborah is doing. Now, how did she get to be doing this? Because unlike most or if not all of the other judges, including Barak, you know, Deborah is not especially appointed, called, or, or raised up to her role. You know, in other accounts throughout Judges, you know, the Israelites cry out and it says, So then God raised up such and such. But that's not the case. Deborah was already there, already doing the job. She led from the basis of her relationship with God and her knowledge of his ways. And as she did so, you know, just that was the person she was. People then recognized her to be a woman of faith, and they saw her integrity and wisdom. And so over time, she gained influence and authority. One of the things that I really believe is that we actually lead best um, out of you know, who we are, consistent and authentic with who we are and out of our own walk with God. And that's what we see in Deborah. I mean, in, in fact, her, her character is on display as she announces God's word to appoint someone else to lead Israel you know, in, in this military context. Instead of trying to grasp that role for herself, she humbly, willingly submits to God and leads alongside another one, another person. She's not worried about getting the glory for herself because she doesn't need it. She's secure in her relationship with and her knowledge of God. And I think this is the primary character of Christian leadership, our, our own walk with God spilling out into everything that we do. When you look at the lists of, of qualifications of leaders in the church that are written in the New Testament, they're not about skill and experience. They're not requiring you know, such and such to be a CEO of a mega corporation or order, you know, whatever like that. They are all about character and the actions that give evidence that character that give evidence to following after Jesus 
So then we've seen that we are to put our faith in Jesus and then to cultivate our relationship with him in such a way that it overflows into all areas of our, of our life and then exercise a godly influence over others from the authenticity of our own walk with God, regardless of whether we're in a formal, recognised leadership position or not. We're to see, we see that wherever you are, whatever your role, as you live out your faith in Christ, you can help others to do so as well. Well, then if Deborah is an example of holding on to faith in a time of apostasy, so too is this woman, Jael. She was the wife of Heber. And we read of him that Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites. We don't know if he had a, you know, it was a family spat or, or what went on. But what we do know is that the Kenites were descendants of Moses' family. They may not have been directly of the people of Israel, but there were family ties by marriage. And yet Heber made an alliance with Israel's enemy. He made an alliance with Jabin, the king of Hazor, enemy, oppressor of Israel. But little did Heber know that within his family, sharing his bed even, was one that maintained her allegiance to God and to his people, who kept faith even when her context, both, both culturally and, and more close to home in her immediate family, did not. And it was this woman, Jael, who then lulled Sisera into this false sense of security and safety before killing him and handing Israel the final victory over them. She remained faithful, though those around her did not, and she was then used by God to effect the salvation of his people. Now, it's not always easy to keep faith in the midst of an environment, whether that's society or whether it's family. It's not easy to keep faith in the midst of an environment that does not hold to it or that even goes counter to it. But Jael shows us the value of faithful loyalty to the God who is always faithful and true to us. And so then we come to the fourth and final idea that I want to draw out of this passage. And that is the idea that God's hand is at work behind the human hands always working for the salvation and good of his people. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through it, but there is a constant reference to the hands of various people in this story. In verse 2, the Israelites were sold into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, to be under his rule and power. In verse 7, Sisera and his chariots and troops were promised to be given into Barak's hands. We're told that Sisera would be delivered into the hands of a woman in verse 9. Jael picked up a tent peg and a hammer in her hands uh, to effect that. Uh, and we see that specifically in chapter 5. And then we read that the hands of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. I mean, these are the, the human actors, but behind them, we are to see that there is another hand at work. It is the Lord who sold them into the hands of Jabin. It is the Lord who gives Sisera into Barak's hands. The Lord delivers Sisera into the hands of a woman after Barak's doubt. Deborah tells Barak at the time of the battle that it is the Lord who has given Sisera into your hands as it is the Lord who has gone ahead of him. It is the Lord who routed Sisera in verse 15 and the Lord, uh, sorry, God rather, subdued Jabin, king of Canaan before the Israelites in verse 23. It's no wonder then 
that throughout the song of Barak and Deborah that comes in chapter 5, that there's this repeated phrase, praise the Lord. And then there's various expressions of that praise throughout it. It's not, in fact, a story about girl power, but about God's power. I remember years ago reading the book, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. It talks about um, the cross of Christ, obviously, but, but what... Uh, what was going on theologically and redemptively in the midst of those experiences of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection for us. And in it, he has this chapter about why, why did Christ die? And he works through the human actors and their reasons. I mean, first there was Judas who betrayed him. Then there were the Jewish leaders and the priests who were jealous of him and laid accusations against him. Then there were the Roman soldiers and Pilate who, who were the ones who actually made it happen. We could lay the cause of Jesus' death at the feet of any of these. But behind these human hands, there was another hand at work. That of God who was working all things together for the good of those who love him. What we see in Judges is the same thing as we see in the story of Christ. God is at work for the salvation and the good of his people. Sometimes it's hard to see. In what we've looked at today, the, the role of God is made quite explicit. But most of the times in our ordinary experiences, we can't see it so clearly, so simply. But what the scriptures reveal to us, even if we can't see it, is that we can trust that God is at work bringing about good for us. See, the reality is our circumstances change just as they did for Israel. Sometimes they're, they're good and faith is easy, but other times they're hard and we wonder if there even is a God. Our leaders also change, whether we're talking religiously or politically, just as they did for Israel. And sometimes they're, they're good leaders and they in, encourage our faith in Jesus. And other times they direct our faith to themselves or they actively work against faith. And if there's no authority except that which God has appointed, which is what the scriptures tell us, well, we can easily wonder, what is God doing? Well, what Judges shows us is that while circumstances change, while leaders change, God does not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, according to the author of Hebrews. He's always himself. He's always true, always holy, always good. He's always sovereign, always acting, always gracious. And so for us, he's always worthy of our faith. We can always trust in him, believe in him, follow him, have our faith in him in the midst of all things. And so to this God that we trust in, to this Jesus who saves us uh, and who we trust in, let's, let's pray. God, we sung already today that it is in God we trust. In your name we hope. We know that you will not be shaken. We know you're here with us, that you've already won. And so you won't be shaken. And so as we have our faith in you, we can know that we won't be shaken. You are the solid rock on which we stand, a rock that is immovable, that is eternal, that is a firm and secure foundation for our lives. And so God, recognising this fact of who you are, recognising that Jesus is the same 
yesterday at the time of judges, today in this moment of our lives and forever into the future. Recognizing this, we want to declare that our faith is in him. God, whatever our circumstances are, in our immediate families, where there's struggle, doubt, pain, difficulty, in our workplaces where, I don't know, the, the boss is a jerk and, and the co-workers are painful and, and it's all just hard, the work's overwhelming and you don't know what you're doing. In the midst of our community, our states and our, our nation where there are um, leaders who, who don't have any inclination towards you, who make laws that are contrary to, to your word, that impinge and impact you know, negatively and significantly us in, in a range of circumstances. When we live in a world, God, where there is war and rumours of war, where there is famine and disaster and, and all sorts of stuff. In the midst of all that, God, Though it might be hard, and though we might not see how you are there, we declare again that our faith and our trust and our confidence is in you. And we would ask that you would help us to maintain faith, to sustain it and grow it even in the midst of these, uh, uh, in the midst of the reality of our life. That just as you are faithful and true, that so too would be our, our confidence in you and that we would see you bring us through. That we would trust that you are always working for good. Even when we can't see it. Even when we can't feel it. Even when there's no way in the world that we could possibly fathom how you are doing it. Yet we trust in you. May that be our reality, God. May we surrender ourselves to you again in faith and confidence and trust. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.